Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, we are in week three of a sermon series where we've, uh, we've been going through called Who We Are. Uh, week one of the series, we talked about love for neighbor. Week two, we talked about um, uh, faithfulness to the truth. Today, we're gonna talk about public witness. Before we uh, talk about it, let me read to you from the scriptures about it. We're gonna read long. We're gonna read deep. These passages are beautiful images of the public witness we've been called to. Exodus chapter 19, verse one, starting with the prophet Moses. It says, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain. He said this, he said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth for all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. From the prophet Moses to the apostle Paul, Romans 12 verse nine, one of the most beautiful images of public witness in all the scriptures. Paul writes to the church in Rome, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. And don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I'll pay him back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you conquer evil by doing good. From the apostle Paul to our Lord Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches, you are the salt of the earth. Huh. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. 
Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Last, from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount to the risen Jesus. His very last words before he ascends, Acts 1 verse 6. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God, every word of his word. Thank you for standing. Okay, so we've all found out a lot about ourselves over the last 18 months, right? Including our church. That's the hope of this series, to tell you who we are, what we've found out about us living through a time of great adversity. Again, in week one, we talked about love for neighbor. That's pretty self-explanatory. We're the Loveville Church. Week two, we talked about faithfulness to the truth. Again, it's in the words. Don't need to do much explaining on that. You get it. But today, we're gonna talk about public witness, and that's church speak. Right, what does that even mean, Tyler? Why are you speaking Christianese to me, all right? Well, let, let me break it down for you and define the terms from the beginning. I wanna give you several definitions for this idea of public witness, it'll help round it out for you. Uh, public witness is our deep concern here at Northeast for how people outside our church view our church. It's asking of all we do, what will this say to the unchurched and the dechurched about Jesus? It's the reputation we're building in this city. It's the realization that we are the body of Jesus. That's a biblical label for us, by the way. We're the body of Christ. That means you and I are as close as anyone will get to Jesus this side of heaven. Last time I checked, Acts 1, 6, Jesus rose, right? And he is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, right? So we are Jesus' physical presence in the world today. People are gonna form their opinions about Jesus based on their encounters with us. That's a big deal. Or to sum it all up, public witness is being conscious that every moment of our lives is evangelism. Which means that if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior today, you are an evangelist. Every moment of your life, every word you say, every act you do, you're preaching the gospel to others. Now, I'm not sure what gospel you're preaching, but in the moments where we speak about Jesus and come to church and in the ordinary moments of our day-to-day, -day, you are telling people a story about how your faith impacts you and about the Lord that you serve. In the mundane moments with your kids around the house, you're actually preaching the gospel to them. In your daily interactions with coworkers or neighbors, you're preaching the gospel to, you're evangelizing them, if you will. Again, not sure what gospel you're evangelizing them to, but they're hearing from you a story about Jesus. In your interactions with both friends 
and enemies. When you're coaching Little League, when you're at the grocery store, when you're driving down the road, mowing the lawn, at the gym, when you're typing on social media, say that one again, when you're sharing on social media, when you're commenting on social media, when you're liking on social media, all of it, when you're on social media, you are evangelizing people. They're getting an idea of the Jesus that you claim to serve. Full disclosure to you, um, yesterday is interesting. Uh, I actually am coaching Little League. And so uh, I'm actually, I'm coaching my, my six-year-old son's team. Uh, we had our first game yesterday. It's a bunch of six, seven, and eight-year-olds, which if you ever tried to wrangle a bunch of six, seven, eight-year-olds, um, it's maddening. It's just mad. Like you get to this point sometimes where you're like, I'm gonna body slam this kid. I mean, his parents, they'll probably agree. You know, but I didn't body slam. But, but anyways, we got through the game. I held it together. And um, it did, I think it did okay. And after the game was over with, one of the coaches from the other team came up to me and said, hey, uh, Tyler, I just wanna shake your hand. I go to your church. And I was like, whew. <laughs> whew. I mean, praise the Lord, I didn't tell that 14-year-old umpire what I really thought about how he was doing, you know, because well, you think about it, you think about it, you're like, this guy probably, you know, said to his other coaches, hey, that's, that's my pastor over there in his Love the Ville t-shirt. I probably shouldn't wear those to Coach Little League, by the way. I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, maybe he, he hit his little seven-year-old son. Hey, that's my pastor over there. Coach the other team. That's, you recognize him? He's our pastor. Every moment's evangelism. Several months ago, uh, before the 9 a.m. service, I literally walked in the room at about 9 a.m. to worship, and then I realized, oh no, I left my Bible and my sermon outline at the house. Now, I was on stage in 20 minutes, about a 10-minute round trip to get from like here to my house and back. So I was like, see, and I like shot out of the drive, shot down the road, up through my neighborhood, driving way too fast. It's 25 miles per hour in my neighborhood. Needless to say, I was going more than that, and. Um, and as I drove through my neighborhood, I was about seven houses away and I saw one of my neighbors who I had never met just standing in his front yard <laughs> with his arms crossed, like giving me the death stare, the scum of the earth stare, the stare that you give high schoolers when they go zipping down your road, right? Like he's just staring at me. And so when I passed him, I kind of like turned my head, you know, <laughs> and my house was just far enough around the corner, by the way, that he couldn't see which house I parked in. So I was like, maybe I'll get away with this. So I go in, I get my, my Bible, I get my, uh, my sermon and I start driving back and I'm like, geez, like the spirit convicted me kind of. And, and so when I got to his house, I stopped. I rolled down the window and I was like, hey man, believe it or not, I'm late for work. And uh, I, I know that I was driving way too fast. You got kids in this neighborhood. I got kids that play in this neighborhood all the time. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that, uh, and I, uh, I'll do better. He was like, I appreciate that. He smiled at me, I appreciate that. Have a good day. And I drove on. Now, that's not the end of the story. Uh, later that day, uh, Damian Thompson, y'all remember Damian? Lead pastor at uh, the Emmanuel Baptist Church, preached here this sum uh, summer. Damian texted me, and he's like, heard you were in a hurry this morning. <laughs> and I was like, what's it to you, bro? And, and he's like, one of my close friends is your neighbor. You know, the one in the front yard? <laughs> and I was like, oh. 
And, and he was like, don't worry, don't worry. He's pretty ticked at you when he came flying by the house, but he said he respects you even more now that you had, uh, you had the, the humility to stop and apologize. And then he reminded me, he said, they're always watching. <laughs> and they are, right? Not just me, you too. Every moment is evangelism. Now, when I say evangelism, for probably a lot of you guys in here, it just kind of lands weird. It almost feels immoral to evangelize people in our culture today for, for so many reasons. I remember last time we talked about evangelism and um, we talked about taking Jesus into the workplace with us. And this is literally what I titled the sermon. Now our, our tech team didn't put it up on YouTube this week. So like, it's too long, Tyler. But I'm like, this is the title, deal with it. Um, it was how to have spiritual conversations at work without being weird or sounding dumb or feeling embarrassed or totally screwing everything up and ruining your coworkers. One shot at Jesus and heaven for all of eternity. And then also getting reported to HR. <laughs> and that's the sense of like pressure that so many of us feel when it comes to sharing the gospel. We live in a culture today where evangelism just feels wrong, doesn't it? Again, for a lot of reasons, like for example, We've seen so many unhealthy examples of evangelism and we don't wanna be about that. We've seen obnoxious examples like the street corner megaphone or knock on your front door during dinner time. You've seen more subtle examples like trying to legislate certain versions of Christianity onto people who've never claimed to be Christian to begin with. You see more abusive examples like the whole hellfire and brimstone, you know, do you know where you're going and when you die? Hell's hot. Can you smell the sulfur? Like all that. The billboards when you're driving down, like I wonder how many of those have worked. I'll tell you what I found. I found that coercive evangelism doesn't work. And it's not godly either. We say it like this sometimes. God didn't call us to scare the hell into people. He called us to love the hell out of them, quite literally. But there's so few examples of, of evangelism that looks like that anymore. Others of us feel like it's wrong um, because we're embarrassed to associate ourselves with hypocritical Christian leaders. There's so many of them out there. Every day you see like another Christian celebrity or politician that's just compromised the politics. Or you, you hear another story of corruption or a story of, me, of sexual misconduct or of a denomination this or abuse that. And it's just, oh, it just weighs on you. Oh, here's another one. A lot of us feel like it's wrong or just, we're just embarrassed to do it because we don't think we know enough about Jesus to talk about him. Like, what do, I, what do I say? Or what if they ask me about this or ask me about that? I'm not, I'm not ready to answer that. Here's an even bigger one. Many of us feel like evangelism is wrong because we've been told it is by our culture. And so we've just accepted that. We've been told that claiming to have the, like definite article, the truth, is wrong. It's shameful and intolerant in a culture that places tolerance as a supreme value. Now, I know I rail on this a lot in church, but I'm gonna rail on it again, okay? And that's because the opposite is constantly being said outside of the church, so I feel like we have to resist it inside of the church. What's constantly being sown into your minds, into my minds, into the hearts of our kids, it, by our culture today, 
are little maxims or pithy truths that sound something like this. Okay? You can be whatever you want to be. Find your truth. You do you. You have your rights, and so follow your heart. Now, those sound really good. They're said over and over and over by politicians and celebrities and entertainment media. They're just sort of sewn in. And so say it enough times and it's just like people just start accepting them as the truth. I mean, not only, not only are they said over and over and over and reinforced by all the different uh, the content avenues that we consume, but they also give us permission to do basically whatever we want, right? So people like these. But here's what I would suggest to you. If we put these cultural truths underneath the, the, the scathing light of our own intellect and our own experience, then we would all have to admit that they're pretty weak, honestly. They're intellectually and experientially weak. They're just not true. We accept them. They're not true. Okay, throw, throw the list back up there. You can be whatever you want. I'm sorry, kids, but you can't. You can't, like, if we could all be whatever we want to, then we'd be CEO by 25, retired by 30, and a gold medalist. But we're not. And maybe that's the reason why so many people are sad right now. Or at least one of the reasons is because we're carrying around this heavy burden of I've got to achieve my dreams in order to really live a full life. Our appetite is always bigger than our reality, isn't it? And so we live in this perpetual cycle of discontentment. And it's crushing. How about the other ones? Find your truth. You do you. You have your rights. Follow your heart. Again, they all sound good. They all sound like freedom, right? But we know right now, just look around, right? Look around our communities. Look around our country. We know that right now, those are not leading to human flourishing and freedom. Because we've got this group over here that's got their truth. This group over there has got their truth. They got their truth. They got their truth, right? And we're all at war with each other about it. And it's not creating human flourishing. There is such a thing as truth, but when we pretend like we can all have our own truths, what we get in, repla in, uh, in replacement of that is, is culture wars, political violence, relational fallout with people that we love deeply, isolation, it's a mess. Oh, and the actual loss of life, it's a mess. Yet if you say them enough times, and you throw a few Disney movies about them into the equation, then we start to believe them. No wonder, by the way, no wonder we feel so ashamed to bring, all caps, the truth of our faith into the public square. We believe that truth is found not in a power or a principle, but in a person, Jesus. He's the way, the truth, the life. And bringing that sort of exclusive truth in a culture that values tolerance, preaches a different sort of gospel, you just feel wrong, almost. You feel wrong. So people don't talk about Jesus. Anybody ever sense that? Just like this sense of I'm doing something wrong here. I, I do. Here's the last one though. This is probably the one that gets me the most. For me, sometimes I don't share the gospels because I just feel intrusive. I feel intrusive evangelizing people um, who seem to be doing all right. Like we all got non-Christian friends in our life who, who are doing all right. Or, or, you know, you got people who were part of church, but then they fell out of church. And you just haven't brought it up with them because they seem to be doing all right. 
I'll tell you this though, as a pastor who gets to see the inside story of a lot of people's lives, if you were given the opportunity to get behind the veneer of all rightness that so many people, especially in East Louisville, feel like they need to project in order to fit in, what you'd find is that in all actuality, people are not doing all right. Life's hard for everyone. It's downright brutal for some people. And the last 18 months have been hell on earth for many. There's a lot of people right now who are desperate, who are broken, who are addicted, who are self-medicating, and who are just looking for a friend or looking for a life or looking for a hand up out of the pit that they have found themselves in. And we got it. We have the key to resurrection life. So the gospel may feel wrong in our culture today, but I'm here to tell you today that it isn't. Oh, and here's another reality. Can we just admit this together? You are here today. Think about it. The only reason you're here today is because someone had the courage and the boldness or just the love in their heart to share Jesus with you. Isn't that the truth? Aren't you thankful for it? I'm so thankful for it. You know, for me, it was the faithful, loving presence of my parents that led me to Jesus. I don't remember like a specific moment or spiritual experience or something like that. It was just their faithful presence. Um, what's interesting is the only reason my dad became a Christian was because his dad, my grandpa Jim, became a Christian in his 20s. And the only reason my grandpa Jim became a Christian in his 20s was because a preacher named Pokey Miller came and visited him in the hospital. Crazy story. So three generations ago, uh, there was a nightclub singer named Pokey Miller who decided to surrender his heart to Jesus, lay down his nightclub mic and take a, I don't know, a handheld mic and start preaching sermons. He became the singing preacher of the Russell Christian Church, which just so happened to be the community where my grandma and my grandpa lived in. Now, grandma went to church sometimes. Grandpa never went to church, though. And the reason why was because uh, he was burnt by Jesus when he was younger, so there's just kind of a chip on his shoulder. And, uh, well, also, he didn't need Jesus. Didn't need him. My grandpa was successful. In his 20s, he was on his way fast to being a millionaire. He didn't need Jesus in his life. He made most of his early fortunes uh, actually selling insurance for uh, Prudential. And he was so good that he got invited to some convention and, you know, Hilton Head. And so one, one day, just to celebrate him. So one day, him and his buddies got in a car and uh, three of his buddies, they drove down the West Virginia Turnpike to go to Hilton Head for this celebration. And uh, on the way there, it was a foggy night. Back then, the, the Turnpike went from four lanes to two lanes. And the guy driving the car didn't notice that they were driving on the wrong side of the road, in the wrong lane. Head-on collision, everyone in both cars died in the accident, except for my grandpa. It's the only one who survived it. Now, when Pokey Miller heard that this wealthy businessman from his community was in a hospital 150 miles down the road, he said, I better go pray for him. So he got in the car, drove 150 miles, went to my grandpa's hospital bed, and, uh, and to basically a stranger, he said, Jim, Death came to visit you this week, but God's given you a second chance. And then he began to just cast vision for my grandpa of what Jesus could do with his life if he were to surrender it to him. And that was all grandpa needed. 
When he got out of the hospital, made it back home, he walked down the center aisle, gave his life to Jesus. The rest is, is history. In fact, it wasn't long after that that Grandpa decided to liquidate his millions in assets, move to Grayson, Kentucky, and become uh, the vice president of Kentucky Christian University. Reason why was because he wanted to spend his life raising up ministers and missionaries just like Pokey. You've seen some of the graduates from that school on this stage today. I mean, I just wonder. I wonder if, if three generations ago when Pokey decided to drive 150 miles to go visit this businessman in the hospital. I wonder if he could catch even a vision of what this small seed he would plant would grow into. The thousands of people in ministry because of it. My grandpa literally kept that school alive with his leadership there. I wonder if he could capture a vision of three generations later, the grandson of this young man standing on a stage on the other side of the state of Kentucky, getting an opportunity to preach to hundreds of people by Jesus. I wonder if he could see that. My bet is that he couldn't. Because we can rarely see the scope of what God's gonna do with our little bitty mustard seed of faithfulness, right? Which is why I wanna remind you today, never underestimate what God can do when you just share Jesus. Simple ways with others. You never know. Now, on the flip side of that, though, I, I do want to be clear on this. Public witness, I, I, I do believe, means direct conversations about Jesus. It does. But that's about 1% or 1% of 1% of the evangelism that you do. Most of the time, your public witness isn't built in conversations about Jesus. It's just the intentional, faithful, loving presence that you bring into your world every single day to ordinary people. One of the best illustrations of that for me um, years ago was uh, the Ingle Scale of Evangelism, first time I saw it. I've made my own adaptation of it. Uh, many of you have seen this before because I bring it up a lot, but basically the Ingle Scale just illustrates for us what Christian maturity looks like. The point of the scale is to move yourself up the scale, to move others up the scale. You can see at the bottom, closed off to God, there's kind of like the salvation line in the middle and you move people to being fully formed, wholly surrendered followers of Jesus. Now, what I've always liked about this scale is, is a couple things. Uh, one, it points out to us that Christian maturity is a process, right? It's a process. A lot of times we like to hyper-focus on the middle of the scale, like the evangelism line, right? But moving somebody from like, I don't know, a two to a five is just as important as moving them from an eight to an 11. They never make it to eight unless somebody's moving them from two to five, right? So all of it is evangelism. All of it is, is of the utmost, of importance. In fact, here's what I would say, honest confession, churches like ours, you know, like, like mega evangelical churches, for a long time have been really, really good at the middle of the scale. You know what I'm talking about? Like moving people from like a seven to 10 across the salvation line, but we've not always been great at the bottom, taking people who are closed off to God and, and opening them up to God, or at the top, moving people into being holy, full life, surrendered disciples of Jesus. So because of that, you get really big churches that get a lot of people wet, but they're not really healthy. You just sort of cycle people from seven to 10 and then back down. I can't, that's what people do, they'll come, they'll hear about their sin and Jesus, they'll accept Jesus, they'll be on fire for Jesus, and, and then they kind of settle at the 10 or 11 level. And their faith gets stale, 
They fall out of practice. Before you know it, they've slipped from like 10 or 11 back down to like seven. And then they hit a life crisis. And so they go to another church and there's like another baptism day, right? And they go and they get baptized again. And you know, the church takes a picture and makes sure that the picture of the baptism's on Instagram because everything's going great at our church, but then they settle again at 10 and there's faith gets scaled. And just over and over and over again, it happens. You would never believe how many people we've baptized like for the second, third, fourth time at our church. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's you, I get it. You were just trying to make sure the first one took. That's on us though. It's on us for not focusing on the whole scale. The whole scale. One more time, throw the scale back up there. You know what else I love? I love about the scale is that it shows us, uh, it shows us how conversation plays an increased role as you move up the scale. But at the bottom of the scale, oftentimes when you move somebody to, from like closed off to God, open to God, like one through six, there's not a whole lot of conversation about Jesus that happens. Again, it's just your intentional, faithful, loving presence. The further somebody moves up the scale, the more talking about Jesus that happens. But when they're at the bottom, you're just loving. You're just bringing Jesus through your life to them every day. It's a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's what we're called to do. Now, that being said, I wanna give you your homework. All right, This is public witness. This is who we are. We believe that every second of our life is evangelism. And we're building a public witness together. So I wanna encourage you with three traits. The Bible will give you a, a hundred ways to build public witness. It talks about a lot of things that we should be as salt and light and representatives of Jesus. I wanna give you three though that I think are especially relevant for our culture today. All right, and just, just pick one or all three if you're an overachiever, I don't care. Pick at least one and just try to pray this into your life. Ask one of your, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ to hold you accountable to it. Here's the first one, first one. First trait I would love to see in our church is thoughtfulness. I would love for us to be a community known for its thoughtfulness. Tyler, I don't ever remember hearing the word thoughtfulness in the Bible. What, well, it's, it's in there. I'm not sure if this word sort of describes the theological concept perfectly, but this is what I mean. Um, in our culture today, there's no, there's no more like category defiers, if you will. You know what I mean? Like you just don't find people who, who push back against the polarization. You don't find people who are like, well, you know, I like to shoot guns, but I also am very concerned about climate control. I go deer hunting and I shop at Trader Joe's because I'm worried about ethical food. You know, it's just like, you just don't, you see what I'm saying? Like there's not people who defy the categories. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, you know, we should shoot guns and shot at Trader Joe's. It's not my point. My point is that as Christians, we are subject to no kingdom of this earth, right? So if there's anyone that should be curious, if there's anyone that should defy categories and sort of transcend the polarized and politicized fray around us every day, it should be us. And when we do, when we are thoughtful people, I think it's attractive. I think people are actually curious about us. Okay, so here's what I mean by thoughtfulness. Throw this slide back up here. Uh, I mean, thoughtful people are people who reject the groupthink, the echo chambers, and the polarization of everything. Thoughtful people are open-minded. They're open-minded enough to listen, perhaps even learn from people that they disagree with. Thoughtful people are also honest. They're honest enough to graciously challenge others when you disagree. And if you can bring that presence in in a gracious way, I'm telling you, there's, there, there is something attractive about that. It's the wisdom 
to be able to discern both the glory and sin in every idea that comes your way. Tim Keller said it like this. I thought it was really good. He said, there's two things true of every human being. One, they're made in the image of God. And two, they're sinful, damnable, and fallen. Every human being, Christians or not, right? True of Christians and non-Christians. We're all created in God's image. We're all marred by sin. So what does this mean, he writes? Well, it means that even when non-Christians make culture, we shouldn't dismiss it outright. It may not be perfect or totally good, but there are good and godly things to be gained. It's what we call the doctrine of common grace. On the flip side, even when Christians create culture, at some level, it will be distorted because of the idols of our hearts. So we must have a nuanced approach because it allows us to evaluate with appropriate humility and appreciation. And it also allows us the capacity to affirm and worship in all moments. See the thoughtfulness he's describing here? So maybe I could say it to you like this. I believe that thoughtfulness sometimes leads us to bold participation and it sometimes leads us to beautiful resistance. And as Christians, we should know the difference. When we see something that is, that is cross-shaped and Jesus looking, we should boldly participate. Even if it's led by somebody who's not necessarily cross-shaped or Christian, we should boldly participate. We should be participating. We should be the loudest. We should be the most passionate, the most generous. We should be engaged. But then on the flip side, when we see something that's not cross-shaped or that pushes back against godliness, we should resist beautifully. Not judgmentally, not in a condemnatory way, but beautifully. Oh, if we could just bring a a beautiful resistance to our culture today. If we could bring self-control in a time of self-fulfillment. If we could bring self-sacrifice in a day of self-expression. If we could bring restfulness in a time of exhaustion, presence in a time of distraction, honesty in a time of spin and disinformation, prayer in a time of rage, curiosity in a time of, of groupthink or polarization, and hopefulness in a time of cynicism, we would turn heads. Oh, we would. Let us be a thoughtful people. Frederick Douglass illustrated this really well. Uh, Douglass was uh, uh, an escaped slave around the time of the Civil War, 19th century. He escaped slavery in Maryland, um, became a brilliant orator, writer, statesman, and abolitionist. One time in a lecture that he was giving in Rochester, New York, he said this. He said, I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. Now, I love that. But what makes it uh, even more beautiful is, uh, is understanding the context in which he was saying this. Uh, Frederick Douglass was talking about the uh, American Anti-Slavery Society, which was an organization in his time that wanted to abolish slavery, but was also an organization that believed to do it, you had to abolish the United States of America. The American Anti-Slavery uh, Society believed that the Constitution was a slaveholding document and the union needed to be torn down and tore apart in order for slavery to no longer exist in these United States. And Douglas pushed back. He saw in the Constitution, like King articulated a generation or two later, he saw in it a promissory note of a society of equality. So this is what he said to push back. He said, to dissolve the union as a means to abolish slavery is about as wise as it would be to burn up this city in order to get the thieves out of it. 
and I love the thoughtfulness. If there was one I would ask us all to approach, let us be a people who are curious and thoughtful and bring that presence into our conversations during this raging day. All right, the last two will go quickly. Second, resilience, resilience. What's resilience? Uh, One of my friends, Rich, said it like this to me this weekend. He said, resilience is the ability of a community or individual to withstand a shock. And we as Christians should be the most spiritually resilient. When we get the cancer diagnosis, when we get the job loss, when the addiction hits our family, when there's a global pandemic that just keeps going and going and going, we should be the most spiritually resilient. We have theological resources like no one else does that makes us resilient, but we also have communal resilience. We have one another. That should help us walk through times like this. This morning, I found out that a dear friend brother of Christ in our church named, named Craig, elderly gentleman, always just bursting with joy. Him and his wife, Rancy, they're, my, they're some of my biggest encouragers. Found out this morning that Craig lost his wife. She passed away early this morning. And so I picked up the phone at 8.45 when I found out and called him right before the service started. And when I called him, my heart sunk because immediately Craig started apologizing to me for interrupting my morning. Tyler, I'm so sorry, I know you're busy. Tyler, I'm so sorry, I know you gotta preach here in a few minutes. Tyler, you shouldn't be calling me right now. Your mind should be elsewhere. And immediately I stopped him and I was like, Craig, there's nothing more important to me this morning than being on the phone with you right now. I promise you the people at our 9 a.m. service will be glad to wait for a minute or two so I can have this conversation and pray with you. Now, I don't know what it is about me or maybe what it is about our culture or maybe, I don't know, the the culture that our pastors have created in this church, but I want you to know that we are never too busy to pastor. We're pastors. And right now we know people need it more than ever. So speaking on behalf of our pastors, we will be a community that is resilient for you. Don't ever fret in reaching out. We need each other now more than ever. That leads me to my last characteristic. Here it is, hopefulness. Thoughtfulness, resilience, and hopefulness. Man, we need hopefulness right now. Can I just remind you, this this is why we come to church on Sunday, by the way. The Jewish people used to celebrate Sabbath on Saturdays. Then the Jesus followers began to celebrate it on Sunday. You know why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. We have hope. It's a day of hope. That means the fate of death and evil and sin has been sealed. That means your justification and innocence before God, your judgment one day was decided 2,000 years ago. That means that no matter how bad it gets or no matter how old you feel, you are young in the grand scheme of the universe because we are going to live forever. We have hope and our best days are truly yet to come, whether it's this side of heaven or the next. I'm gonna tell you what, when we have that sort of hope and let it exude out of our lives, that has evangelistic power in a day and age where people are just depressed and desperate and self-medicating and lonely and sad and in need of light in the darkness. So let us bring the hope, let us live the truth of what we know to be is true in our heart. 
Michael Bird, best, best quote I've ever read on hope, uh, wrote this. He's a New Testament scholar from Australia. Uh, he said, the hope and vision in scripture is not a blind faith or a cockeyed optimism. More properly, Christian hope as laid out in scripture is the audacity of faith under adversity. Love that. Hope is the cheering and triumph for what others deem a lost cause. Hope denies that our lives don't matter. Hope is currency in the land of melancholy. Hope is the dancing when the music has long ceased. It's the bread for the starved soul. It's the voice that whispers to us that all things are possible with God. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all of our fears. Hope holds out a light rather than curses the dark. It's the physician of a terrified soul. It's the hero of the weak and it is defiance in the face of the tyrant. The gospel is the story of the invasion of hope into a world that knows only despair and darkness. And the gospel tells us about men and women doomed for a hopeless end, discovering Christ Jesus in an endless hope. That's us. Hope is that shameless confidence that scripture's testimony to Jesus is totally trustworthy. And that's what we have. In fact, scripture tells us that when we celebrate communion, which is how we will end our service today, Scripture tells us that we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. It's a feast of hope on the day of hope. So I'm gonna invite Taylor on stage right now. Let us partake of a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice together, and remind ourselves the hope we have in Christ.